Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today I sat down with healthcare worker and activist Anna Labodi. Anna is a physical therapist who recently moved to California to put her newest niche as a neurology certified specialist to good use. She, like many, was jolted into action regarding anti-racism education as a white ally following the death of George Floyd. Today, we talk about what the process has been like, the bumps along the road, and what is left to be learned. Anti-racism is not a checklist or a class that you complete a few assignments. I also want to note that we talked about one instance in which I experienced racism at my alma mater. The individual who committed the act is no longer at the institution, and I do want to say that sitting down with her to talk about it and naming those wrongs did provide for some therapeutic healing. Let me know what you think of this episode. Uh, you know, If you like it, give it a rating. If you love this episode, leave a review and share it with a healthcare provider in your life today. Follow, subscribe, so that you never miss another episode. Enjoy. You are listening to the Cornerstone Conversations podcast, where we invite and ignite mindful moments through education-driven, people-oriented, principled conversation. I'm your host, Christy Dion. Let's chat. Hey, buddy. Good morning. I guess it's morning. Well, yeah, it's still morning over here. It's morning there. That's not true. Why did you select 8 a.m. to do this? <laughs> I knew that we might have Saturday plans and I wanted to still be a participant in them. We're going to the beach after this. So I'm like, Casual. What? I do. We're going to go to probably Headland. It's somewhere that one of my patients actually recommended. It's San Francisco gotcha. area. So you're just going to beach all day? Is that what you do in California? This is the first <laughs> time. <laughs> Solid. Solid. I made macrame last night. That's something apparently I do in California. Macrame, plants, all that stuff. <laughs> new job, new state. So you're living in California now. How many states have you lived in at this point? I think only three. Massachusetts, Texas, California. I'm just double Not many. I don't know. Yeah, no. Well, those are all very vastly different, different. places. <laughs> I mean, Mass and California are a lot more similar, but Texas was definitely a nice little outlier in the middle there. Yeah, but you're also not counting rotations. No, I'm not. I lived in New Hampshire then, and that's it. My rotations were in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Texas. Again, vastly different. (laughs) Live free or die. Live free or die. 
motto goes with you every state. How are you acclimating? Pretty good so far, I would say. I hope so. I don't know. Working on it. Is California your favorite so far? I think so. And I don't know. It's kind of still new to say if it's my favorite, but I definitely do feel the slower vibe. I remember when I was at a conference um, in Colorado, didn't live there, just a conference. Um, that was my next question. That, <laughs> that um, some people I was hanging out with called me out for it. They're like, you're definitely an East Coaster. And I was like, what does that mean? And we were all just like sitting around hanging out. And I said, we should go do something. We should explore Denver. And they're like, no, you can just literally exist right here. And like, that's enough. Like, you don't need to like do. And I was like, oh, well, I need to do. <laughs> it's a you thing. And I think it's the me thing. And I think it's also like a little bit of East Coast thing. Because I see here, like not many people do. Like a lot of people are just like content which is nice. Being content is doing. I guess so. Hard for me to feel that yet. I'm not there yet. I don't have the Cal- the Cali vibes right. yet. I'm working on not it. Not there yet. Working on using Hella instead of Wicked. I don't like giving up Wicked. I don't think I'm going to give it up. It says you have to give it up. Nobody no. would. My brain maybe. I don't know what I say it and people make fun of me. So, well, is, so is California more of a culture shock from Massachusetts or Texas? Or is it? You mean like going from Mass to Texas versus Mass to California? Yeah. Oh God, no, Texas was a bigger shock. And I think I think I was fortunate to live in Dallas and Texas because Dallas is a very like, I don't know, diverse city and not very much like Fort Worth or San Antonio or different places where it's just a little more Texas, Texas, like cowboys and guns and things like that. Um, but Texas was definitely the first place that I saw guns just on everybody. And I was like, I don't like that. Um California is a little bit more Massachusetts-y. It just has palm trees. Like some days I'm driving to work and I'm like, you live in California. This isn't Massachusetts. Cause it fall, especially right now. Like it feels like, feels like July here right now for Massachusetts weather, which is kind of, it's cool. But then the leaves are kind of changing and it's blue skies every day. It's, it's, it's just people like my friend I hung out with last night. She's like, I'm hoping for some rain soon. Cause like I'm bored of these blue skies. And I was like, Never have I ever said that. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, Massachusetts Northeast keeps it like light because we have four seasons in one day. Yeah. Four seasons in one day. It's like, here you are. Right. But California a little bit too, where like you wake up and it is cold. Like I wake up and it's like 55. And then by the time of like noon, it's like 90. I don't know how it varies that widely, but it does. And that's kind of nice. But like, I never know what to wear. I'm like, am I going to have pants on, but I'm going to be cold, but I'm going to be sweating later. Tis a lot. Or thing things recovering well from the fires and all of that? What was that like? So far, oh gosh, that was, it was surreal. Cause I mean, I knew fires existed. I knew it was a thing, but I never had to sit and experience it and like be a part of it and to be in a new state where I'm excited to explore and then realize I can't go outside because the air quality is in the 400s and I shouldn't be breathing that in and it hurts to breathe and all of my plants outside have dust on them and I have to blow the ash off so that they can photosynthesize and just it was just different because fires exist but they don't they don't really hit you until you're in the middle of them and you're like wow like my parents came to visit probably two weeks ago we went to Napa and we couldn't go because Napa was on fire and we got there and we parked and you could just see this entire hill on fire and it was it was terrifying and it's it's just it's scary because people are having to evacuate I've had patients um, in the hospital that I'm treating that one of my patients found out as he was in the hospital he's like my whole house is gone everything burned and he doesn't have any money or resources or insurance for a new house 
Um, so we had, we kept him three weeks longer than we were originally intending to, so that he could figure out like some living situation um, to kind of move forward from there, which made me very thankful I did outpatient before this because he kept like leveling up function wise. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I can do this because I was an outpatient. And I remember how to like make you a higher level functional ambulator mm-hmm. and balanced person. Um, but yeah, that was interesting to see. And he just, I was on, I was in his room and he got the phone call of my entire house burned down and it's just gone. And he didn't have anything left to his name, like not even a pair of shoes. So that was scary and really real to be a part of and see. I'm hoping they die down, but people say that October is fire season, but our fire started in September when I got mm-hmm. here. So I don't know what this fire season's really going to look like. So there's fires still happening. Yeah, right now. Fires. Not as close to me as they were. Like right now I have blue skies. Um but when we when we were in the thick of it, like you couldn't see the sky. There was just no sun. The sun was this like eerie red glowing ball. Um, and it was beautiful. And we're like, oh, maybe California's sun is just really cool. And we're like, no, that's smoke. No. That's just smoke hazing over the sun. That's like, a, that's a mirage. No, don't look at You're that. You're amongst a natural disaster. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And we're like, oh, the sun is gorgeous. Right. No one in your house is from California, mind you. So everyone's like, wow, this is great. (laughs) Yeah, we're all like, this is a whole new world. Yeah, no, it was interesting. No, it's still, there's still fires. They're still working on putting them out. It's, it's scary. Uh, Marisa, my roommate, her, um, one of her friends, her brother is a firefighter and he like does these wildfires. And I just, I can't imagine having a family member doing this every day because they, they're destructive. They're deadly. They're scary and they're real. And I, and I don't think... I realize how real they were until I'm just sitting here living in it, you know, seeing smoke falling from the sky and my car is covered in ash instead of snow. So mm. a little different, a little different. A little different. I mean, and that was not something that happened in Texas, right? Did Texas have its own set no. of, I'm going to say unique natural occurrences? Thunderstorms, lightning storms. Texas had some really crazy storms and we loved that. Blair did not like that. But Texas was gorgeous in the sense of you could just sit outside and watch these giant thunderbolts because there's no mountains in Texas. There's, it's just flat. So like you could see for miles of these giant thunderbolts that just take over the entire, entire sky. Mm-hmm. It was really cool. So I think that'd be the only thing. And then just like random torrential downpours. Like I think these are a picture that my friend sent me from Dallas where there's just a rain cloud that's just dumping on Dallas. And like you can see it from an aerial view of just the amount of rain that's pouring. I don't know how we don't flood. It must be kind of like our elevation or how we're settled. But by the amount of rain we got, I was so surprised we didn't um, flood. Oh, and hail. There was hail. Really? Which, which, yep. There was like hail, I would say probably like quarter size. Not not huge, but like bigger than I've ever seen in Massachusetts. Um, that was kind of scary because my car wasn't covered and I just bought a brand new car. And I was like, oh my God, my baby's going to get dented. And she, it was fine. Nothing happened. But... I was nervous, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Brand new car. So you talked a little bit about how Texas, well, you were lucky to live in Dallas, how it was different from all the other parts of Texas. What else made it so different? Dallas? I think it was the first city that I've ever lived in. So I've really never, I mean, I lived in Springfield for college, but Springfield's not a giant city compared to Dallas. And I think that was different, like the idea that I could walk to do things and the idea that there were just all these different places all around. Like I never had so many options for food and for just adventures. I could type in at any point, like things happening today. And there was eight different events where Agua, Massachusetts, where I grew up, you typed in things to do. And it was like, maybe go to a farm stand. Um, So just a little different in that sense of 
just things to do. And then the people, the people were just very different. I grew up in a town that was very much like one size fits all. And Dallas is not that way. Dallas, Dallas is cool. And this just described it to me as like a transplant city. Um, so not many people that I hung out with or met in Dallas were actually from Dallas. They were from different areas and they all just kind of come together there. It's just a nice little melting pot of a city in the middle of Texas. Can't say I love Texas, but I like, I really did like Dallas. Gotcha. So I'm not mad I lived there. Well, what was it about Texas that you didn't like? Um, guns. I think guns is really what bothered really? me. Really? And I think it, yeah, I don't, I didn't know I had a fear of guns. Mm-hmm. I just has never, have never been exposed to them before, but just to be walking around and just see like a random gun on a hip, I just didn't love it. And then venturing out to Fort Worth and other places around Texas. I like Dallas, but venturing outside of Dallas, um, it was just a lot of different, different politics that I wasn't, uh, wasn't used to being around. I'm from Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. a very democratic liberal state. Um, Texas is not that way. So just kind of hearing those thought processes and listening to what different people think, like it was an eye-opening experience and I learned a lot, but I was like, Ooh, okay, that I don't agree with that. And how do I not agree with that, but also be a respectful human? Because a lot of times it also came up at, with my patients. So I was working in Texas um, as a physical therapist and some of my patients would say things and I would just be like, oh, I can't touch that topic because I am trying to be professional here. And I just, I don't have that eloquent like voice yet to take that and kind of make it a make it a good conversation without being like you're wrong Mm -hmm. because I mean there is like there is not a huge you're right you're wrong but there are some things that are like "Mm, no you're really wrong and trying to not offend because then the next day I still have to wake up and go to work and help them become to help them get back to their life and if I offend them they're not going to buy into what I'm trying to do so it was kind of like a give and take in that sense of I'm trying to be a physical therapist but also human yeah I was wondering too like Obviously, Texas has different pockets, and like you said, you Texas or Dallas was more so one size or not one size fits all. But did a lot of those ideologies translate into those conversations with patients? Could you talk a little bit more about how you did maneuver it at the time when, say, a patient would bring up a topic that you're like, mm, I don't agree with that? Um, I think a lot of the patients that I saw were actually not from Dallas. So they were for the, from those kind of outskirts of Texas. Um, we took people from all over Texas just because Baylor is just such a huge unit and has great care. I do. I do love Baylor. I can't say a bad thing about (laughs) it. Um, so a lot of those patients would be coming from areas where, for instance, a lot of our techs and a lot of our rehab aides were people of color. And I had some patients who were white who would mention to me, Um, I don't really want him taking me back to my room. I don't feel safe. And I would just kind of get down and get on my knee and be like, what, why don't you feel safe? Mm -hmm. Justin is an amazing guy. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't know. I don't, can you just explain that to me a little bit more? What makes you feel unsafe? Mm -hmm. And then they would go a step further and just say people of that kind, I don't feel safe. That's, that's not who I want to be near. And I would kind of just maneuver it as well. I just need you to know that he is part of our staff. He helps me be a good physical therapist. He has my back. I has, I have his and being here. I hope you can know that everyone here is a trustworthy person. And he's, he is here to take care of you. Just like I'm here to take care of you and he will get you back to your room every day safely. And he is, he is the one who was going to be doing that. Cause that is his job and he's really good mm-hmm. at it. So, um, it, and it was hard. She, she got better. She got used to it, but I think there's definitely still some underlying 
grudge that she was holding against me that I didn't then just escort her back to her room safely in her sense of her mind. Um, a lot of religious topics too. Texas is very religious. Um, I don't really identify with any particular religion. Um, I'm more spiritual in my sense of kind of who I feel, how I feel. Um, and so a lot of times patients would just ask randomly, like, do you want to be cremated or do you want to be buried? And I just didn't really know how to answer that. Cause I, I don't know right now. Mm -hmm. I really don't know what I want. Maybe I want to be cremated and made into a plant. I don't know. Maybe I want to be buried. Maybe I want to be sprinkled in the ocean. Yeah. I have no preference right now, but the fact that I had no preference offended them and they thought I wasn't good. And I actually got fired by a patient, um, who said like, I don't want to work with Anna cause she doesn't believe in what I believe in. And so that was kind of hard. And it was a moment to learn from, I was in the residency. So I had my mentor and she kind of was real with me and she's like, patients are going to fire you. Not everybody's going to like you, but if it's over something that you believe in and you stand for that's no shame to you. Like you should not feel bad. Like if you did a treatment that the person was like, I didn't like that treatment. That's a little different. Cause maybe you need to learn a better treatment style for that patient. You can adapt to them. But if it's human, human stuff and it's rights of people, no, like you can stand your ground and you can be fired and that's totally fine because there'll be another physical therapist here who will say the things that that person's hoping to hear. Mm. But it's, it's still hard because like professionalism and you're trying not to offend and you're trying to be kind of walking that line of, I don't know, not, not offending, I guess is the biggest thing. Yeah. Well, how much of that is you wanting to be liked? probably a lot of it. Like I do enjoy definitely having, cause I think a huge part of patients recovery is their buy-in to the program. They're but like, if they don't believe in the program, they're not going to want to invest in it. They're not going to want to put their time, their motivation. They're not going to take like hold of it and say, this is my program. Yeah. So if they don't believe in me, they don't believe in the whole program and there's no getting better. Um, there's a theory in physical therapy. I don't know if it translates to probably, probably translates to all different things. It's called the optimal theory. And one of the biggest um, portions of it that I'm obsessed with is just the idea of autonomy, giving that patient autonomy. And that could even be as small as, hey, we're, can you meet me down at the gym at nine? And then feel free to pick a mat. I'll meet you there. Just to give them the option to pick a mat so that I'm not always going to their room, bringing them to this specific mat that I choose. Give them some sense of I have a choice in this process. And then to take it like to the next step and we're going to do this first. And then that first, we're going to do a little bit of balance and then some walking. And then I want to check out the stairs, which would you like to start with? And even just having language and conversation like that is shown in research to help them buy in more. And they feel like they're part of the program because they absolutely should feel like they're part of the program. This is their body and their life. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like that's something that I've become more and more passionate about after doing the residency is kind of helping be patients advocates and helping teach them that they have a voice in their care. Um, actually a great example. I had a patient the other day. Oh, he's, he's excellent. He's, I'm so excited to be treating him. Um, geek moment. Let me just simmer down. Do your thing. But he, I know he, um, had a stroke. Um, his left side is weaker than his right. And the biggest thing we're trying to work on right now is re retraining his brain that his left side of his body needs, needs to support him and needs to kind of turn back on fire work for him. Um, and so I was going into his room when he was getting transferred to the toilet by um, the nurses and they were doing a different method than we do in therapy where they just kind of stood him up and they were just letting him kind of stand on his own, all kind of janky, not in, not in good alignment, not in good posture, not in anything that we're trying to promote and train. Yeah. Um, 
pull the wheelchair out from behind him, put a commode underneath him and then have him sit. And then, so I just like kind of sat back, simmered on it, let it, watched it just to see what was going on. And then when they left, I like had a conversation with him and I was like, how did, how did, how did that feel? And he was like, um, I mean, I know I wasn't standing how we stand, but I don't know. And I'm like, do you like doing it that way? Or would you prefer to do it the way that you learned with the OT that gives you more independence? Cause that way he's actually transferring his, his whole self, mm-hmm. not them lifting him or yanking his pants down kind of indecent care, you yeah. know? Um, and he said, well, whatever's easier for them. I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to make anybody have to work harder for me. And then I kind of sat down and was like, listen, um, I was like, listen, John, his name's not John. We're going to pretend it is. Um, listen, John, this is your time here. This is, we are all here to make you better. And if we don't speak the same language, if we don't do the same treatment, if we aren't continuously putting that huge repetition into your brain, your brain's not going to learn the correct movement. And then you're never going to learn how to use that left leg again. And I was like, and you have a very fortunate stroke in the sense of you're cognitively intact. You, you understand everything you can speak, you can converse, like you can process. Mm -hmm. And I was like, so I think this is a huge moment for you to take that moment and say, Hey, I, I think we should do it the way I've learned in therapy because it's better for my recovery. Um, and I told him, I'm like, you're standing with nursing more than you're probably standing with me because you stand up and down to get into bed, stand up and down to get to the toilet. You have just daily life things that require you to stand more than you even stand with me. And that's just adding more chances for you to have maladaptive recovery. So kind of sending, making new motor plans that aren't necessarily ideal. Um, and your brain's going to latch onto those. And once they latch on, it is awful to unlatch those. Like once you've taught a new motor plan, it is really hard to get it out of the system, especially when it's kind of like a freshly laid motor plan. And he was like, wow, I didn't know that. Thank you for telling me that. I will definitely start making sure that we do it the way that we do it in therapy. And I was like, do you want me to also go a step further and talk to the nursing staff and just kind of say, Hey, can we, can we keep consistent? And he's like, I would love that also, but just for him to kind of notice I have a say in my care and I shouldn't just be kind of picked up and pushed around and make it easy for the nurses. I should make it functional for me and make it what needs to happen for my body to get back to what I need to do. Well, you're talking about a lot of stuff that overlaps with like the racial injustice and cultural competency in the sense of like, once you've been taught the wrong thing, it's very difficult to unteach that. Mm-hmm. So you were talking a little bit about patients and not to name any coworkers, but did you find that it was easier to have certain conversations regarding ideologies with coworkers because there didn't have to be as strict a wall mm-hmm. of professionalism? So per se, a coworker is talking about religion, talking about race, talking about uh, homosexuality, talking about all these topics, honestly, that are on the ticket and are in election year discussions. Yeah, definitely. And I think I might not be the most professional physical therapist to like, just put it out there. I feel like having real conversations at work are necessary. Um, And I feel like there's a lot of times where I've heard things that I'm just like, Oh, Oh no. And for instance, I think there is like, we've talked about before, there's a huge health disparity with people of color. There's just a huge misconception that people of color don't take care of themselves and don't care about their bodies, which is so wrong. And so just not, not what's actually happening in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of healthcare workers are biased. And I think I actually pulled up a stat on that because I was like, mm, this is not great. 67% of doctors 
have a bias against African-American patients, mm -hmm. which is just crazy to me. And I just, and it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I have a patient who is diabetic and it's type two diabetes mm -hmm. and they are a person of color. And one of my coworkers was like, Hey, yeah, so maybe we'll get his blood sugar or blood glucose under control, but like, he probably won't care about it once he gets home anyway. Mm. And I was, this isn't at my current job. This is a prior mm -hmm. job. Um, but I just said, why, why, what makes you think that? And she's like, well, he had a stroke because of his cholesterol and his blood pressure and this and this and that. And so he doesn't care about his body mm. and come to fact, come to know, I talked to this patient about his health and about his kind of overall what's going on in your life. And he had a stroke because his blood pressure was too high. And he had that stroke because it was a month when he didn't have much money and he had to choose between, I'm going to buy my medication, my antihypertensives, or I'm going to feed my kids. Mm. And he fed his kids and he had a stroke and now he's sitting in front of us and we're all supposed to help him rehab. And the thing that I'm very thankful for about my current job is we have a neuropsychologist on unit and she talks to almost every patient. And so she can really dive into those sections of what's going on. Like, how can we get you back and make sure that you don't come back here? Like, what, what are you missing? What do you not have? We also have a social worker on site, which I love. He's excellent as well. And he kind of goes into that of what's not working. What, what do you not have? What resources do you need? Here's some ideas for you. Here's this program that you can go to. Um, but there are definitely times when I think coworkers don't take the extra step to ask somebody the question, just why or what happened or how. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll all learn about each other if we take that moment to ask those questions, which I think I'm learning more and more as I'm working with more and more patients and with more and more people in general of just taking a moment to listen and taking a moment to see what's happening. Cause we all have stuff going on right now. You have stuff. I have stuff. Everybody, my dog Blair probably has stuff going on right now that we don't know about. Everyone has stuff. And if we don't be human and ask each other what's going on, we'll never understand why someone might be a little bit irritable today, or someone might be a little bit testy and you don't know that maybe their grandmother just died or they just lost, a, they just lost a ton of money or something. You don't even know if it's big or small, but it matters. And we just need to listen and also have conversations to understand people. And I think I'm trying to do that at work every day, but I'm also trying to kind of touch that line of offending again. And I think I'll kind of push that line a little bit more with coworkers than I will with patients Yeah, just to kind of say like, no, wrong. We need to work on this. I think it's more imperative to push that line with coworkers because they're the ones giving the treatment or not mm -hmm. giving the treatment. And just like you were saying, that's not an uncommon story. And, you know, 2016, there was an article published by Hoffman et al. And I'll, I'll put this in the show notes, but it was like racial bias and pain assessment and treatment recommendations and how those false beliefs can prevent or provide the right treatments. So are black patients getting over-the-counter counter medications versus the, you know, prescribed pain medications? That's one right mm -hmm. there. And if we look at the disparity in just, oh, black people don't feel as much pain because their skin is thicker. Like there are medical students who fully believe that because that's the narrative that's been taught time after time after time. But there needs to be a realization of that's a false narrative. And the reason that it's been passed down generation to generation implicitly is because we wanted to make, or not we, but individuals wanted to make themselves feel better about causing pain to another individual who was enslaved. 
that that's what mm-hmm. a lot of these ideologies and implicit biases are rooted in it was oh who cares if who cares if we're arresting these black people or if we're treating them a little rougher like black on black crime they don't care about themselves why should we care about them how we value them and a lot of it mm-hmm. does have to do with it's not that black people hispanic people those who are minorities don't care about their body if they don't have the access to do that or they've never been introduced to it they don't even know it's an option so like for instance mm-hmm. telling someone who has a low economics or like low socioeconomic status just eat more vegetables and fruits when vegetables and fruits are probably the most expensive things in a grocery store slash the closest grocery store to them is a bodega where they don't have that like it's a moot point so i think oftentimes in healthcare we forget that social our our ailments are socially rooted so if for instance, with things going on with COVID, we know that those who are immunosuppressed, those who are elderly, those who generally have more comorbidities have a greater likelihood of not surviving COVID, not surviving those symptoms. Okay, well, let's look. What populations have greater comorbidities? Hmm, is it the American people? Why is it the American people? Well, are we investing in making fruits and vegetables more accessible? more socioeconomically available. And then we look at, say, the Black community, Hispanic community, all of these minority communities that have things like respiratory issues. Well, where are the majority of them living? Cities? What's in cities? Well, projects, ghettos, apartment buildings. Why are they living in apartment buildings? Why can't? Why aren't they living in suburbia? Why aren't they living in a house that has, well, organization redlining? Like, it's all... Mm-hmm. interwoven and so i think that is something that needs to be discussed more in depth or at least brought up in these classes because what happens is students want to go into medicine and they're taught the same falsehoods and then they go into the field and they're giving treatment and it could kill someone could easily like i have a patient right now actually or he discharged last week and he Oh gosh, he fell off of his motorcycle. He shattered his hip on the left. He broke his right wrist. He is just in all sorts of pain, all sorts of pain. And the doctor comes in and initially just offers him Tylenol, Mm -hmm. which I'm just kind of like raising an eyebrow to. And I'm like, "Mm, Tylenol, I don't think that would cut a bunch of broken bones. Mm -hmm. Whereas my other patient who is a a physician who's broke his hip is getting IV morphine. Um, and then, so this patient kind of was saying, I have a lot of pain. I have a lot of pain. I have a lot of pain. And then they started prescribing him more opioid drugs and like some harder drugs. So they were offering him more drugs, but not listening to what he was saying. Cause he was at, like, I was in the room with the patient and the doctor and the patient said, I used to have an addiction problem with that. And I'm trying to stay away from that. I would like to not have opioids, mm-hmm. like very well articulated, advocated for himself, stated exactly out loud what he mm-hmm. needed. And the doctor said with the pain, this is the best medication. And so the doctor left the room. I sat with the patient and I said, let's talk about this. Like what, what kind of happened? He's like, I've been clean for this many years. I used to have a problem with street drugs. I would find Percocets. I would find opioids. I'd find all these drugs in the street and I was addicted. And he's like, and I've, and I've gotten out of there, but I'm terrified to get that taste again and to be right back where I was. And I don't want to be there because I know how bad of a place I was in. 
And so then I went to the doctor and I said, there's gotta be some type of alternative for some medicine that's non-addictive. That'll still kind of cut his pain a little bit. And the doctor just, the doctor was very respectful and kind of like sat back and was like, oh, you actually care. I'll listen to this. And so I felt like, oh, you're listening. Thank mm-hmm. you. But also he kind of raised an eyebrow of like, why am I taking so much extra time out of my day to talk about one patient versus another? Um, and so at the end of the day, we got him a medicine that worked for all areas. He had less pain. He had, he didn't have an issue with it being an addictive substance. And he went home with that and didn't have an issue. Hopefully, hopefully this week too. I don't know. I haven't seen him. Um, but it's just crazy. Like some patients don't know they can advocate for themselves. And even in an instance there where he knew he had a voice and he used it, it wasn't listened Mm -hmm. to. And that, that was just hard to, hard to see, hard to hear, but then I'm just hoping that there's more people who are learning and there's like our, our history that we all learned. It's not great. Like if I think about what I've learned, um, at Springfield college where I went to physical therapy school, did we learn a lot about health disparity? Did we learn a lot about culture in, um, PT? No, we didn't. And I wish we learned more. And I think that's a huge aspect that they should add to that program because we didn't talk about those things. And I don't, I think it was probably Texas that taught me a lot of those things because I was in more of a city and in more of like where there is a little bit higher crime because it is a city. Mm-hmm. And I just learned all of these different things from my mentor who thankfully was very competent and very culturally aware. Um, but I didn't learn that in school. And I wish I did because I think I probably did a disservice to some patients prior to going to Texas that I didn't, I didn't even realize I was doing. And you try not to beat yourself up for that, but then you think like every person's lives you impact, you hope that you make the positive impact and then kind of rewinding being like, oh, I could have done this, shoot. And it's just same thing with trying to become anti-racist. It's just always learning what's happened, learning what not necessarily you've done wrong, but things that you didn't realize and then moving forward and saying, okay, now that I have this knowledge, I, I'm not going to ever make that mistake again. And I'm going to kind of build upon it as much as I can. Yeah. There was a um, quote that my residency director said, and I think it applies to PT, but I don't think it applies to becoming someone who's Mm -hmm. anti-racist, which was, you don't know what you don't know, which is so Mm -hmm. true. Like, you don't know what you don't know. And I think you've said this too to Mm -hmm. me before. Um, So let's take, for instance, like Guillain-Barre. I had my first patient Guillain-Barre when I was in residency, and I was like, I don't know what Guillain-Barre is really. And that's, and that's fine because I can go home. I can look at the textbooks. I can teach myself, but unless it's brought to your forefront, unless it's in front of you, you're not going to learn. And you don't know what you don't know until it's in front of you. And for me growing up in a very all white town, I didn't know anything because it wasn't in front of me and it wasn't impacting me. Um, So I think that really stuck out. Like the more I've been living in cities and more diverse communities I've been kind of aware of more and now I'm like shoot I should have been learning this prior shame on me but I also had no freaking idea and that's kind of how the system was built where I was Mm -hmm. was that it was kind of a red line town and it was a place where I think I only graduated with two people of color in my class of 350 like it was that's that's where I grew up and so trying not to kind of be mad about where I grew up because I I mean I loved my hometown Mm -hmm. But learning every day moving forward of you can't just wait for things to hit you in the face. You need to seek them out and you need to find out new resources and find new information before it kind of hits you in the face. And then you're like, whew, I need to learn this now. Yeah. Well, and and to kind of echo what you're saying, I think a part of it is normalizing. Oh, I don't know what that is. Let me look it up. Why is it normal Mm -hmm. for someone to be like, I don't know what Guillain-Barre is. Let me look it up. Mm -hmm. But then another piece of that is, are those resources available 
in full correctly. Yep. Right. Instead of saying access to those resources, like, do you have internet? Exactly. To, To Google. Exactly. Well, just recently when I was teaching my section on race, nationality, and ethnicity, I was like, we're going to go through history. All right. Emancipation Proclamation. What did it do? Student. It, uh, it freed enslaved people. Great. Now, when were enslaved people actually freed? What? June 19th. What's Juneteenth? You know, some, some students knew, some students didn't. And I think with the climate of now, more people did know what it is, but it's going to keep getting better every year. Last year, I got mm-hmm. completely blank stares. Right. This mm-hmm. year, a couple students have like, oh, isn't that when it's like, awesome, I can work with that. Great. All right. What's the 15th Amendment? Oh, it allowed people of color to vote. Great. How many people of color could vote? Right. Three fifths rule. Right. We, it's things that we heard about in elementary school, but we just kind of like, oh, but it, things are fine now. Things mm-hmm. are good now. Just recently, I learned that Native American people did not get the or were not granted citizenship until 1924 oh i did not know Uh, that like this that's my thing i'm like wow like the native american culture has been stripped of its languages its its identity in so many facets and i'm just like i know nothing like i can i can go on social media and be like hey you need to know a bit more about this but it's also understanding and looking back and being like ah but i need to know more about this being ableist Mm -hmm so many things that I'm not aware of. Like understanding that everyone knows something you don't, but making sure that we're educating ourselves in that. Like it shouldn't be someone who's Native American's job to teach me their history. Mm-hmm. Just as I don't feel like it should be my job to teach people black history. For the fact of I just love having those conversations and I want to educate my friends, but mm-hmm. it can be traumatic, you know? And there was a lot big stretch of time, a long period of time where I didn't identify with American black history because I'm a first generation. So I'm like, oh, well, this isn't my history. This is just things that happen. Mm -hmm. But if you look at me or someone else looks at me, they don't know that I'm a first generation. So it's, it's imperative that we all know it. We all know history. It shouldn't be black history. It shouldn't be white history. It should just be history. That it's, and it should be the real history, yeah. not the history that we've sugarcoated in school. Exactly. Because, geez, the things that we did not learn, or at least I didn't learn in my, maybe our, maybe our educations were totally different too, from where you grew up to where I grew up. But my high school education, I didn't, I didn't learn anything about any of the amendments, I don't think, unless I just skipped out on class that day, which I doubt I did, because I mean, you know You're me. You're a nerd. <laughs> I'm a nerd. I can't skip out on learning. Jeez. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It is just it's a lot. And it's, and it's interesting. And I, and I think myself included, like, this is probably the first year that I really knew what Juneteenth was as well. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm ashamed to admit Mm -hmm. that, but also like, it's just part of my learning process and part of my journey. I knew it existed in prior years, but I couldn't, if you asked me two years ago, what does it mean? I would be like, Oh, I think it has something to do with, I'm not sure. Exactly. And that's that shame on me. And just, I guess it's just a point to, I'm, I'm sad that it took this level of being hit in the face and seeing George Floyd die and seeing all of these people die for me to be like, Ooh, I need to learn. I need to figure this out. I wish I started sooner, but I'm at least thankful that I've started. And I'm at least thankful that 
I took this time to be like, all right, I need to learn. I need to figure things out. I need to understand why the world is the way that it is. And I need to understand why that people have biases and like, what, what, what are my biases that I don't even know that I have? And like, what, what's, what, what have I learned that I need to unlearn? And what have I learned that is, that is actually right. And that I can kind of go forward with or like build upon. Um, but it, it's tough. And I think resources are really helpful. I think, like you said, social media is helpful, but it's just a little snippet. Mm-hmm. It's like kind of these cool graphics that catch your attention, but then hopefully people take those graphics and then dig into them a little bit deeper. Cause we all don't know where the exact facts are coming from these until you dig in deeper. Um, but I'm, I am thankful that social media, I'm not a huge social media person. And I've definitely, definitely become a bigger voice on social media lately because I've been learning so much through it. But then also you have to take that learning and go elsewhere and like fact check, double check, find other things and kind of just keep growing that, growing that learning. For sure. So what does it mean to you to be an anti-racist? You mentioned that term. How do you define it? I did. Well, I actually have, I think I sent something to you with some, with a phrase that kind of hit me in the face of exactly how I understand it. And I I put it on my little notepad over here. So let me read it to you because I think it does a really good yeah. job in somebody else's words and then I can kind of use my own words too. Awesome. Um, it's from a book called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting in the Cafeteria, which fun fact, Christy uh, told me that I should read and it suggested as a resource to me. And thank you very much because I've thoroughly enjoyed it and learned a whole ton from. If anyone's looking for a good book, I would definitely recommend that one. It's not too long of a read, but it's a very good read. Mm-hmm. Um, so it says, and I quote, I sometimes visualize the ongoing cycle of racism as a moving walkway at the airport. Active racist behavior is equivalent to walking fast on the conveyor belt. The person engaged in active racist behavior has identified with the ideology of white supremacy and is moving with it. Passive, passive racist behavior is equivalent to standing still on the walkway. No overt effort is being made, but the conveyor belt moves the bystanders along to the same direction as those who are actively walking. Some of the bystanders may feel the, mo- the motion of the conveyor belt, see the active racist ahead of them and choose to turn around, unwillingly to go the same direction as the white supremacist. But, un- but unless they are walking actively in the opposite direction at a speed faster than the conveyor belt, unless they are actively anti-racist, they will find themselves carried along with all the others. And so I think going off of that, prior to this pandemic, prior to 2020, I would probably consider myself a passive racist in the sense of I would be like, no, I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't believe in that and kind of turn my back. But what is turning your back doing, but just ignoring the issue and not, not effectively making a change. And so now I think I'm kind of trying to work towards that anti-racist level of actively walking against it, actively going against it and going at a speed that is faster than those who are going with the conveyor belt in this analogy. I love visualizations to kind of make a change and get off the conveyor belt altogether. Because if not, if you just stand there, it's going to just keep carrying you along where the system has been laid, where the systemic racism has already been kind of structured in our, in our communities, in our world. Um, And until we all decide to kind of turn that around, I mean, it's, it's, all of us don't need to, because I don't think that's maybe not possible with some people's mindsets, mm-hmm. but a big chunk of us, I'm hoping can kind of turn our backs and walk forcefully away and make these changes and really, really make the world a better place for everybody and not just what suits us ourselves and what doesn't affect us. That doesn't matter. You need to think about other people. Yeah. How do you define it? How do I define it? Mm, good question. So 
similarly to when I read that book, I was like, yes, boom, right? The conveyor belt is the system and it's working exactly the way it needs to for the people who built it. Um, so even though people did not build it, the ones now do not build it, like you're benefit from, benefiting from it. To be an anti-racist is to be actively in every, in any sense of the way, in whatever, say, your social justice love language is, to be love language. to doing that. And whether that is educating others, whether that is not going forward with the racism that's occurring. And for me, it's mainly speaking up in situations that you could, you have something to lose. To be an anti-racist is to acknowledge the system that is in place. And it is to say, I'm not going with the system and I'm taking active steps in building a new one. That, like that's that. what it is to me. I mean, I mean, I'm sure there's times that I've even benefited from a system and this is not even just with racism, but like ableism, classism, mm -hmm. where I grew up, uh, you know, I know that I am the one black friend, the first black friend for a lot of my friends, mm -hmm. Me included. you know, and it's tough. It's tough in the sense of like, you don't want to be the guy or the girl or the whoever who's like sucking the fun out of a situation, but it's sometimes it needs to happen mm -hmm. for muscles to grow. There needs to be micro tears, right? So yes. there needs to be a little friction, but I don't know. The last few months definitely showed who's doing the work. Like you can tell who's doing the work. You can tell, like, it's not just posting. Posting's awesome because you see it. And who knows? Maybe the one post that you make pushes someone else to be like, let me look into this, right? Even if it's, like, in anger of, like, Psh, this person's wrong. I'm going to find something to prove it. And then they don't find anything. <laughs> I've definitely done that the other for way. Sure, for sure, right? I mean, it doesn't always have to be positive. Like, some things are just built nope. in spite. And that's a conversation Eric really and I had. Like, some, some good things that come out of things are just built in spite or rooted in spite. Yep. But <laughs> I don't know. Well, how do you define doing the work? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, doing the work. I think it, I think like you said, it depends on your love language for kind of activism. And I think it depends on how you learn. So I, like for me, I'm not much of a reader, but I think reading was the best way for me to learn this because I don't think, I mean, watching documentaries was awesome. I watched 13th, mm -hmm. um, which I also recommend if anyone has not watched that yet. And I learned a ton from that, but just kind of actively finding different resources. So you're not just sitting on the same social media site or the same website, um, actively finding different resources to then just grow your library of library of knowledge and then sharing that with others. Cause if you keep it to yourself, what, what good does it do? You're helping yourself and you're helping your own kind of roots be undug. Um, but you're not helping anybody else's. And so I think doing the work is learning and then sharing. Um, and I'm thankful to have a lot of friends, um, who are interested in this. And one of my friends who is my coworker actually now, mm -hmm. thankfully, which is one of the big reasons why I moved out here to California. Um, she's very passionate about this also. And she's been just a very easy person to talk to because 
we're not always right. You're not like, no one's always Mm -hmm. right. And we have a good relationship where we're okay with that micro friction, that micro tear Mm -hmm. of, I might say something and she'll be like, Ooh, Anna, let's, let's unpack Mm -hmm. that. Let's really figure out what you were trying to say. Cause I think you had good intentions, but the way you said it was totally not, Mm -hmm. not where I think you were hoping to go and vice versa. So I think it's good to have those people who already kind of have like minds, but then you've got to reach out to those people who don't have like minds and who are kind of resistive and see if there's a way not you can like wiggle into mm-hmm. their wiggle into their minds, but kind of plant the seed and just like start small, but then be okay with friction and not be afraid of it and not run away from it. Um, which I've definitely had some friends who we don't have the same exact mindsets and the same exact views. And it's been tough to have those conversations with, but at the end of it, I've felt like, okay, I think both of us got some, got some knowledge from that. Both of us learn something, maybe we'll both stew on it and come back and have another conversation, which is exactly what happened. We both kind of sat with with it for a Mm -hmm. week. We're like, kind of mad, kind of grumpy. Like that wasn't the best conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was one of my first ones to have after kind of learning a lot of this information. And so it was probably messy on my part. And I think I came from a sense of defense in the beginning of, I think it was my own projection of my own pain that I hadn't been doing this work. And now that I am, I'm like, you need to do it Mm -hmm. too, which Ooh, Anna, slow down. Not everybody is ready. Not everybody is like actively open to change. Um, but you also can't wait for everyone to be open hundred percent because no one will, I'm never open hundred percent to any change. I mean, moving to California, I was probably about 60% ready when we left the door. Mm-hmm. I was, I was not ready, but I'm here and it's amazing. And it's a whole new experience to learn from. So I think that's kind of doing the work, learning, sharing, finding like minds to kind of vibe with, and also find those opposing minds to kind of learn from. And hopefully you guys can find a, find a way to not just ignore the issues that are all around us and that are happening. Yeah. Well, I think that that piece of finding minds that you don't always necessarily align with is a big part of it because you're Mm -hmm. always gaining something new. For me, if I'm talking to someone who doesn't align with me 100%, I'm like, I'm gaining another perspective. And it's going to do two things. It's either going to change your mind or it's going to strengthen your opinion. It's just going to confirm whatever it is you're doing. But in order for that to happen, you need to fully listen to what's being said. Mm-hmm. And not picking apart the pieces that they're saying that you want to hear versus don't want to exactly. hear, which I think somebody I talked to that was a very opposed view of my own, who I never realized and never thought, oh, maybe they have those thoughts. We never talked about it before. So I had no idea. And I just accepted them as a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was actively listening and I was like, wow, I can't believe you just said that. And I think the big points that stood out to me muted the stuff that maybe they said, mm-hmm. right. And I think I need to do better at that of listening to the whole picture and kind of actually reading through or listening to everything. Cause like you said, you're going to learn things or you're just going to ignore mm-hmm. it. And I don't, and I, and I hope not to ignore. Yeah. I hope to listen. Going back to kind of the first thing on physical therapy, you need, we need to listen to people. Well, I, w- I do want to bring physical therapy a little bit into this. Cause you talked about optimal theory. How much of optimal theory have you tried to translate into your conversations? Hmm. That's, you know, not a lot. Mm. Okay. So optimal theory too, in the sense of it has a lot to do with kind of the specificity of task and kind of making sure that you're doing the right thing. So it is like very much physical therapy Mm -hmm. rooted, but I think in the sense of autonomy and motivation and all of those things, it could definitely go towards this. And I don't think I have, to be honest with Mm -hmm. you. And that's a really good, good thing to kind of look forward and figure out how to do because it works beautifully with patients but what about people what about 
I mean, patients are people, but what about the people who I'm not treating physical therapy wise? Mm -hmm. And I think motivation is a huge key and autonomy. And so giving them the resources and letting them kind of go with it. So instead of me sitting in front of you right now and saying this stat and this, this statistic and this book and this, that, like maybe just giving you um, a wide variety of things and saying you could do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, whatever works for you and letting them choose. And maybe that'll be easier for them than me saying, you need to learn more about this specific topic. Mm -hmm. Like let, there's so many topics to learn about right now. Um, And I think one resource that's been helpful with that is, I don't know if you've seen it, but the justice in June website. Um, And it was one where you could kind of pick a model of how much you want to learn and how much time you have, whether you had like 10 or 45 minutes a day, and it would give you all these resources that you could pick through and choose from. And I think that is a good one because then I have the autonomy there of, I don't have 40 minutes a day. I only have 20 Mm -hmm. and I can pick that and I can know that and I can plan for that um, so that I'm not setting high expectations for myself that I won't ever meet and then get mad at myself and just shut down altogether. Cause I, that is a, that is a habit of mine. Um, so trying to make sure that I look for others to see, do they need kind of an outline? Do they just need like a conversation? Like what works best for you and your learning process, just like physical therapy wise, what works best for you? You're a visual learner, you're a kinesthetic learner. Are you a doer or what, what do you need in your body? that'll help this stick and that'll help you take it to the next person when I'm not even a part of your life anymore. And you'll still carry these forward with you. Yeah. I mean, you also talked a little, you've been talking about resources throughout this and I'm writing them down so I can put them in the show notes, but (laughs) cool. You also kind of talked about making mistakes in a sense of like, you're going to make mistakes. Like even myself, us having a conversation, you are a physical therapist with what is it? A neuro a neuro certification specialist, a bunch of letters, right? <laughs> just and three. just a few, yes, right. Just a few. but we're having a conversation. You're tripping up on your words, and what do I say? Are you okay? Are you having a stroke? And I'm mm-hmm. like, whoa, wait, ew, right? <laughs> First of all, ableist. Second of all, rude. Third of all, what, it's just like you said, like with Lisa, like what are you really trying to say? I think your intentions are good here, but what are you really trying to say, mm-hmm. right? I make mistakes. I've made mistakes. And I, and what was a positive out of that was being able to go to my class a few days later and being like, I made a mistake the other day. Let's talk about it. Yeah. It's important to know that even though I'm standing in front of you, I've done a lot of work. I still have work to do and you will still have work to do. You're not going to leave this class and be like, okay, check, check, <laughs> check that box. Got, got my competency, got my cultural humility. Like, no, 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 no. This is a start. This is for you to be able to pick out when you are on social media and when you are in conversations and when you are in spaces that your counterparts, your targeted oppressed groups will never be able to enter, whether that's Mm -hmm. gender, sexuality, race, ethnicity, whether you are a European immigrant versus non-European immigrant. These are spaces that you will get to enter that we, we might never get to enter in that same aspect. So I say all that to ask you, have you made mistakes throughout this anti-racism time? Oh, definitely. And like in the beginning, I think I almost wanted to shut down from them. I almost wanted to kind of just stop and just put it, put away all the books, put away all the information mm-hmm. and just be like, wow, I'm not good at this. But that's also a mistake right there because it is just my own privilege to be able to put it down and not worry about mm-hmm. it and not have to just actually dive into it. And I think the mistakes that I've made and the <laughs> hiccups that have happened and the things that haven't gone perfectly are like very minute 
to what people of color are actively going through every day. And so if I can't deal with a little bit of frustration every now and then compared to someone maybe being scared for their life to get pulled over by a cop, I, I need to, I need to kind of own that and say like, okay, this isn't going to be perfect. This is, this is going to be messy, but we need to move forward. And even having this conversation with you today, I was talking to my roommate downstairs. I'm nervous. What if I say something? Mm -hmm. What if I put my foot in my mouth? might've already put my foot in my mouth and I might not have realized it, but unless you are doing these things, unless you're open, unless you're speaking, unless you're kind of working towards it, you're not going to know what you don't know. And you're not going to know how to better approach situations and how to better have discussions. Um, and I'm thankful to have you. I mean, you, I remember one of our conversations on the phone, I was talking about different resources that I was looking into and you were like, Anna, this isn't a test. This isn't like a checklist mm-hmm. where you're going to read this book, watch this documentary, talk to two people, and then you are done. You, you made it. Congratulations. You got your credit. And that <laughs> Exactly. And I think I needed to hear that because I, like you said to me, have been in a very school mindset from the age of what, when do we start school until I ended my training, I think at 25. Mm -hmm. So I've really, I've only had a year of my life so far that I haven't been taking tests and I haven't been checking boxes and getting credits. And so I think I have to switch that thought process of this isn't a course this is life. And this is something that is going to be forever changing and more knowledge is going to be brought to the surface. Cause there's still stuff that probably none of us know that we just haven't figured out yet and that we need to keep digging into. Um, yeah. So thank you for kind of bringing that to my awareness. Cause prior to that conversation, I was very much in the sense of check, 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 did it cross it off, made a yep. list. You know, I love yep. lists. It's so satisfactory to draw that line through something for that sure. I'd read or done or said, but that's just not what it's about. Mm -hmm. And also being graceful with yourself and not being mad. If there's a week that goes by that you didn't read that book because life still happens. And there's still stuff that I'm working on here, trying to figure out how to, how to have a job after not working for six Mm -hmm. months Um, and how to kind of go forward with that. And so, yeah, oh, it's, it's, you're going to make mistakes. And I think one mistake that I've made too is kind of being too harsh on some people Mm -hmm. Um, and not realizing that people learn in different ways. So not everybody, like you said, is going to be posting on social media and people are still doing work behind the scenes. And there's, there's ways to do work other than just like shouting at the top of your lungs. This is happening. Look at this, Mm -hmm. read this fact. Um, and I think there's some friends of mine that I kind of had conversations with and said, I just don't think you're doing enough. And they said, you don't even know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I'm like, shoot, you're right how about I ask, how are you doing? What are you doing? What, what's going on? And then listen first and not jump to assumptions, which for agreements, you and I both love. Mm -hmm. One of them is don't make assumptions. And I still actively need to work on that because I read that book at least once a year, but still comes right into my life every now and then when I realize I am assuming, and that is just not, not healthy, not helpful for anybody. Mm -hmm. Cause then you're just hurting someone's feelings without even, even knowing where they're coming from or what they what they're, what they're actively doing. Cause maybe they are doing the work. It's just not the work that you're doing and that's okay. Do you think, well, I'm glad you're not as nervous anymore. I don't know why you're so nervous. How long have we known each other? But I, I think we, well, I think we have that relationship though, where I, and you've created a somewhat of a safe space in which I can just be like, Anna, yep. <laughs> what you're doing is either like misguided or yep. you're a nerd. Like, you know, I, I felt <laughs> through and through, you know, but that was like, uh, and it was also, it also came, that conversation also came at a time 
that I hadn't heard from you after everything had happened. And then it was like everyone started just whoosh, overwhelming me through text calls, all this at once, where it just had to be like, a, look, I'm pissed you weren't here sooner, but I'm glad you're here now. However, mm-hmm. the course is life. There isn't a test at the end of this. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, it's constantly working. Like, you can't just study up on anti-racism and then it's like, awesome. Boom. You know, it's not like there's not a final boss at the end of this where it's like, okay, I'm ready to fight the final boss who is, uh, you know, ultimate. But has has this time and you doing the work and how you've been doing it, has it pushed you to reflect on our time at college and how we've had different experiences? Definitely. And you and I have kind of had conversations about some of those experiences. Um, And going back to what you said, just one, one bit further Mm -hmm. where I didn't call you right away. That was, that was a mistake. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a fear rooted mistake of, well, George Floyd died and all of this stuff is happening, but does that have anything to do with Christy? Mm -hmm. Because I like, I don't want to kind of clump you into this group of just because you are a person of color and this other person of color, should I call her? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And then when I called you and I got that reaction of, like, I, I'm glad you're here, but I wish you were here sooner. I was like, damn it. Mm-hmm. I should have been there sooner. And like, that's a shame on me. And now learning, moving forward, making sure that I am there for people who I know, like, and I think I'm big on having awkward conversations, but I'm also terrified of them. Yes. And so <laughs> I'm thankful that you were patient with mm-hmm. me, but also I'm sorry that I took as long as I did. Um, yeah, we've had definitely different times at Spring Hill College. We did a lot of the same stuff. Um, we both did pre-camp, which was excellent. Mm -hmm. We both did physical therapy for a bit. And I think that was a tough, tough area where differences happened, where I know it it didn't work out for Mm -hmm. you. And I didn't know how to help in those senses. And I, and I don't think at the time I had any awareness that it may have to do with the fact that you are a person of color. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that crossed my mind. I don't know if that crossed. I mean, I'm pretty sure that probably crossed mm-hmm. your mind, but I don't know it. And we haven't really had that conversation. Yeah. Um, but that alone is just a huge factor. And then, you know, just that rainy day where we were building houses together. Um, but just that alone sticks out in my mind so much. And I think is just a huge thorn in Springfield college and how that was handled. Um, where I mean, let's just yeah, we yeah. can talk about it. Where, yeah, um, where we, you and I, because we are just givers and lovers and acts of service, we're helping rebuild the house in Springfield for the day. We we're cleaning up the yard because you know, good people, you and I, mm-hmm. we like to find ourselves doing those those tasks um, and helping our community. Shame on us. <laughs> so then we go back to our dorm room, and as we're walking in together, there's a cell phone just sitting on the desk. And we both look at it and you're like, oh shoot, I wonder whose this is. I hope, I hope they don't, we we should like, we should, oh, it's almost dying. Mm -hmm. We should probably take it. We, and we both sat there and we both agreed, like we should take this phone. Whoever's it is knows their number. They'll call us. We'll find them. We'll deliver it to them. Easy peasy. Let's go upstairs. Right. We want to charge it so that when they call, we can pick up. (laughs) It's going to die because then it's a useless phone and they have no idea where to find Mm -hmm. it. So you go, we both go upstairs. Um, we're in different dorm rooms. You do your usual thing where you put it on airplane mm-hmm. mode. Cause that's literally what you do. Like that is just exactly how you always do it. You put my plane on airplane mode all the mm-hmm. time. And I'm like, what are it you doing? It makes you charge faster. Just, exactly. Which I didn't know until I met mm-hmm. you. Um, 
And so we both pass out because we just did some hard labor and we're tired. And I wake up to a phone call that the police had seen us on the camera take the phone. And then I don't know if you badged in or I badged into the building, but one of us badged in. So they had our names. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was you because they called you first yeah. or they just chose to call you first. Um, and they were accusing you of stealing the phone. Mm-hmm. And I came downstairs and I just couldn't fathom that. And I couldn't understand that because you and I together were, uh, were together mm-hmm. at the time that I, I, we both watched it happen and we both said, this is the right choice. And you happen to take the phone. I happen not to, and they accuse you of stealing it. And I'm like, why aren't you accusing me of stealing it or being an accomplice in stealing? It? I was at no fault in that situation, which just baffled my mind and made me really grumpy about mm-hmm. it. Um, but then of course, that's just me worrying about me. And I wasn't, and I'm then having to look over and like, be like, what the heck must Christy feel right now? And I think you were almost like in a little bit of shock because you were not reacting. You were just like very calm mm-hmm. or also police force are right in front mm-hmm. of us and we have to act calm. Um, and so did it end up going on your record or not? No, remember. it was honestly no. looking back, he was just saying it to say, to uh, frighten us. But a part of that, the second part of that was at the time, again, we did a lot of similar things. We were both applying for a desk job. And so we both had our, what's it called? Our interviews for like that Monday following. And I remember because we didn't get any, um, hey, this is the situation. I need you to file a police report. Instead, it was, we need you to write a statement. No background, anything like that. And I remember it was actually you who said it was like, is this going to affect our interview? Like, will we still be able to get an interview? And he's like, no, it's not going to affect it. Yeah. Fast forward to Monday. I go in for my interview and that's the first thing that is mentioned. So tell me a little bit about this phone. Why did you do that? All this and didn't even get an interview. So I sat there for an hour and was berated. You go in for your interview and what happens? I go in for my interview and he basically criticized me for being your friend. He basically said, why are you hanging out around with someone who would be kind of guiding you to do these bad things? And I just looked at him and I was like, what are you saying? Mm -hmm. You must not know who Christy Mm -hmm. is. You must not understand what she does for this campus. Mm -hmm. And you must also be just judging her based off of probably a hundred percent, the color of your skin, Mm -hmm. because why is it not my fault that I let you take that phone? If I took the phone instead of you and if I put on airplane mode, which I don't think even matters, but would they have accused me of the same thing? I, I wish I could rewind and see that mm-hmm. just to kind of see, is it as bad as we, as it looked to be and as it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of was just very snarky with him. And even though I completely was rude to him and disrespected him, he still gave me the decency of an interview, which I was also like upset Mm -hmm. by. I was like, and then I didn't know you didn't have the interview at that point. So then we got out and we talked and you said, I didn't even get an interview. And I was like, are you freaking kidding Mm -hmm. me? So I thought it was like a debrief. What's this phone about? And then let's interview. You didn't even get that. And that, that was just bad. So then I don't remember if I just didn't get the job or if I pulled my application, I don't know, but I was, I was adamant. I'm like, I'm not working for this man. Cause this is, this is, this is wrong. And this is just straight racism. And I, I want us to talk about, I wanted us to talk about that in the sense of once we know better, we do better. So now that we both know what we know and we have the resources and we've been educating ourselves, we're more armed with, if we're faced with that situation to know how to call it in for a conversation Mm -hmm. and call out the things that need to be called out. So, I mean, 
mistakes are always going to be made and there's always going to be bumps along the road. And a part of learning more is you end up reflecting and that wasn't your fault that that happened. Honestly, it wasn't even my fault. And that's something I, that's something I had to identify too. Like that wasn't my fault either. But when we're doing this work, whether it's an anti-racism, anti-ableism, all of this work to be better, there's going to be times where we flash back and we're like, "Ah, I should have done that better. 100% sit in it and we got to let it go and know that Mm -hmm. and make that promise that it's not going to happen again yeah for sure so do you have any advice for people who are entering this journey of anti-racism as healthcare professionals Oof, healthcare professionals definitely everybody um but healthcare professionals specifically yes because i think depending on the institution that you went to, depending on where you learn from, you probably like me have a lot of things that you didn't learn or that you learned incorrectly. Like you said that people of color, their skin is thicker so they can take more pain Mm -hmm. or they can endure more things. Um, And I think a lot of things too, if I think back on it, textbooks that I learned from, like thinking about COVID, there's a rash that tends to come along with COVID and it looks totally different on someone whose skin is darker than someone whose skin is lighter. And what are we educating people with, but the picture that is light. And that's not what, that's not the world we live in. We have all different skin tones and all different variations. And yet, if I look back at the textbooks that I learned from, I don't know how many people of color, different skin colors were in those textbooks. And so kind of taking the time to realize that the same health condition might present differently in different people so that you can be aware and that you can advocate for those people and not just looking at this one textbook that shows this picture in one manner, because gosh, I mean, with everything, color or not color, everything comes out different, every different person. So like one rash might look different on me versus my mom, even though we're even related. Um, So kind of taking the time to learn that everybody is different and accepting that and appreciating that and learning with that. And not just assuming, of course, again, don't make assumptions, not just assuming that because you learn something a certain way that that is how it will present or that is how it will always be. It can change. Things always change. Um, And also that culturally competent section that I think was just breezed over (laughs) at school where I went to, um, unfortunately, very unfortunately, taking the time to learn more about that and not, again, thinking just because this person is... Indian that they must practice this certain religious habit and that they maybe don't eat this or they don't do this. No, like maybe Mm -hmm. they don't identify with that. And maybe they don't even have a, like, maybe they're not even religious, but how, like, you just shouldn't assume that. And again, thinking, listen first and then, and then have the discussion instead of sitting there and saying like, oh, I know all about you or I, or I've got a picture of you in my head. You shouldn't, you really shouldn't because everybody is different. Every person I've treated so far, I don't think there's one person that was like the other Mm -hmm. one, thankfully, because then the the job would get very boring. Um, But really just making sure that you are doing that. And then again, advocating for your patients and teaching them to be their own best advocates. Um, So having those conversations with doctors, if for instance, with that drug situation where he just was pleading for, please don't make me take that. And please give me an alternative to say to the doctor, you, that's your job. And reminding doctors, because sometimes I think they are lazy because mm-hmm. they have a lot on their plates, not trying to give them excuses, but like they do a lot. But at the same time, I think they're almost in robotic mode sometimes where it's like, oh, leg hurts. Let me give this. Mm-hmm. And it's just an automatic without thinking about the person, how their body system might take in that drug, what their past history is with that. 
and moving forward. And whether that also be just a, a modality, maybe someone isn't, maybe their religion and their culture, they don't want to be touched and you need to respect that. And you need to ask those questions before you just go ahead and grab, because as a physical therapist, I am all over people a lot of times because I'm helping facilitate parts of their body that they can no longer mm -hmm. use. And I think that's something that I've learned is again, ask first and then touch. So like, can I, do you mind if I touch here? Do you mind this is, or just explaining, I'm about to do X, Y, Z. Is that okay with you? Cause if not, I can find another, another way to do it. And then learning those other ways. Cause sometimes your brain, you say that and then they say, oh no, I'd prefer not. I'm like, well, shoot, now I got to pull something out of my toolbox. Yeah. And then you learn, um, or going home that night and researching what's a new way to facilitate dorsiflexion rather than using this certain type of assist. Can I use a different type of assist? Mm -hmm. Can I not touch them at all if they don't want that? Um, so I think just really being people conscious and people focused and learning that everyone in an amazing, beautiful way is unique and respecting that uniqueness and advocating. I love that. Honestly, the four, agree the four agreements has come up in so many episodes <laughs> so so <laughs> i mean i think probably because you love it everyone loves it it's a great book oh, i'm obsessed with solid it solid book i have my little pocket version <laughs> yeah what what's your favorite for agreement what's mine yeah be impeccable with your word because mm -hmm. a lot of people talk but yeah aren't honest it's just like you said Even like i this. can find another way and then it's like i would like another way you're like <laughs> dang Shoot. they asked for another way it's like well yep. if you didn't mean it why'd you say it <laughs> yeah you know so now you gotta, you gotta do it yeah i think well i think our words are one of the most powerful things we have but the action paired with that is like what i actually look at if you tell me you're gonna do this thing and then i'm left to believe you unless you prove otherwise mm -hmm. so, yeah for sure what was it be impeccable with your word don't take anything personally don't make assumptions mm -hmm. always do your best always do your best do your best. I think personally, I try and do the don't take things personally, but then like in, in the sense of the world, I be impeccable with your word has become more and more important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, they're all important. I could talk about all of them. All important, but that one's my favorite. We know this. Yeah. That's why they're, they're all together. <laughs> oh, so, I love them. so what is one thing that you have learned about yourself throughout this journey? Hmm. Hard to just pick one thing. One thing I've learned. I'll give you two. I'll be nice. Oh, I'll give you autonomy. Oh wow! Oh well, then maybe I'll only pick one because it's my choice. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that I've learned I need to be more patient with myself, and that I need to not be so hard on myself, and that I need to be okay with messy because I hate messy. Mm -hmm. I'm a type a a lot of times gold. I don't know if you know the colors. I think yeah. Yeah, you know you, you've told yeah. me the colors. I'm not fully familiar to say that I am yeah. competent in them yeah so I'm gold which is basically like organized structural like things have a place things belong in certain areas um and I'm trying to let go of that because it really it has a purpose and it has a place where I can organize all of my thoughts and I can kind of make things happen but I also need to be okay with it's not going to go perfectly and then you've got to have a plan b and you've got to have a plan c and you've got to be okay with that and I think that's what I've learned is let life be a little messy, but let it be messy in the sense of you're still trying. You're not just letting everything kind of go chaotic because that's not helpful either, but let it be messy in the sense of you're not always trying to control everything. And I think even with this, mm -hmm. I called you yesterday and I was like, Hey, give me like a little screenshot of like what to expect. Mm -hmm. And you were just like, no, 
And I was like, shit, I knew she was going to say no. I knew she was going to say no, but that's exactly what she should do. Because if I sat here and if I organized all of my thoughts and notes, this would have been a very robotic conversation, which is not what is meant to be with podcasts and with just conversations in general, cornerstone conversations. Um, I want the record to show I sent her an email with the three main bullet points. (laughs) So she was getting greedy. (laughs) I was getting greedy. I wanted more because, you know, more information, more, you know, yeah, Mm -hmm. I was getting greedy. You're right. I can't say that you didn't give me any heads up. I had an idea. Right. I don't want them thinking I'm just this like uh, witch. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just going to ask you anything I please. Right. Did you have anything else you wanted to add to that? Or do you want to stick to one? I think I will stick to one because I think that is the one that I am trying and not I'm trying to stick to, Mm -hmm. but have learned the most about is just don't be don't be perfect. Nobody's perfect. And that's okay. And I think I'm learning that with being a physical therapist, being a roommate, being a partner, being a friend, like things aren't perfect. But as long as in the end of the day, your intentions are in the right place and you are learning from what you're doing and that your heart is in a good place, there's really no, there's really nothing that can go wrong, even if it looks messy. Right. It's just like that show, Ugly Delicious. It might not look good, but it still tastes delicious. It's a great show. Chef Dave, he's the best. All right, well, that's all I got for you. Thanks for sitting down with me. I appreciate you. I love you. Okay. (laughs) It just makes it awkward. I'm going to leave it where it's just you saying I love you, and I'm going to say, okay. (laughs) Okay.